We're at an extremely dangerous time, an extremely dangerous time. Hello, and welcome to The Interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, your host and the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. I am very excited about this week's episode because I had the chance to speak again with David French, who is one of my favorite writers on politics, religion, the law, and the conservative movement. For those of you that don't know, David served in the Iraq War and worked as a lawyer before turning to writing. He was a senior editor at The Dispatch, he wrote for The Atlantic, and he now serves as an opinion columnist for The New York Times. I called up David this week to discuss the legal peril facing former President Donald Trump, the state of the 2024 race, the Dominion case against Fox News, a new controversy involving Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and much more. David, thanks so much for coming back on the show. How are you doing? Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you bringing me back. So I want to start by talking about the indictment of former President Donald Trump. This is huge news given he is the first former president in the history of the United States to be criminally indicted. I'm pretty sure I have my facts right on that one. Yet the charges have been criticized by people on both sides of the aisle, including yourself. Run us through your objection to the charges in New York against Donald Trump. Sure. It's pretty easy to to state. So essentially the way the work the law works in New York is you have a crime of falsification of business records that is normally a misdemeanor. Um, now, if he had been charged with 34 counts of falsifying business records, that normal misdemeanor, he there'd be a really good case for that. Um, there's a lot of evidence that business records were falsified to cover up payments to Stormy Daniels. But the problem is um, there's a two-year statute of limitations for that crime. And so the statute of limitations almost certainly expired some, t- some time ago for that misdemeanor. Uh, there is a felony falsification of business records crime in New York which essentially says you take your misdemeanor of falsification of business records and you tie it to another crime and you have a felony. It's a low-level felony, but it's a felony and has a five-year statute of limitations. And under some quirks in New York law, even though you know, in it, arguably the statute of limitations would have run out at the end of 2022, there are some reasons to believe it actually is, uh, hasn't run out. But what's the other crime? So to prevail on these 34 counts, you have to show that there was the crime of falsification of business records, and you also have to show another crime. And this is where this gets dicey. So the most obvious sort of other crime is related to federal campaign finance law. So this is the Michael Cohen uh, pled guilty to federal campaign finance violations, along with pleading guilty to a number of other federal crimes uh, for his role in the Stormy Daniels cover-up. Uh, but the Biden DOJ has never prosecuted Trump for that, his role in the federal campaign finance uh, controversy. So it's an unindicted federal crime regarding Trump. And regarding Cohen, it's a federal crime that he pled guilty to. But here's where things get kind of uh, squirrely, Aiden, is that there's a lot of controversy over the scope of federal campaign finance law to encompass things like a hush money payment. This is not a settled matter of law. This is not something that's been fully litigated. And there's an awful lot of smart people who say, wait, whoa, whoa, federal campaign finance law isn't so broad that it encompasses that. 
So there's a matter of law issue. There's a matter of fact issue. There's a, a federal crime here that is being tied to potentially to a state crime. It's all very unusual. Well, then there could be some other state crimes that are tied to this uh, misdemeanor. Well, that gets that gets kind of controversial as well. So federal campaign finance law is going to preempt a lot of state law uh, when it comes to to campaigns. And also there's been some allegation that, well, maybe there's some tax fraud here, but that's not been fleshed out. So at the end of the day, where you are is you have a very solid misdemeanor case that is time barred likely by the statute of limitations and a shaky felony case that is not time barred. And so that's where we are is the felony case against Trump is pretty shaky. And that's not just my opinion. It's the opinion of a number, as you noted, a number of commentators across the legal uh, legal and political spectrum. And also, interestingly enough, uh, the opinion of some folks who used to work in Bragg's office. One of his former prosecutors wrote a book, um, very angry at Bragg for not charging Trump for different crimes, but noted in that discussion that the underlying theory related to Storby Daniels was pretty novel. <laughs> and so- Right. Add it all together. It's not a frivolous case, but it's a shaky case. Right. And I think it, particularly the fact that when we're talking about that underlying crime, uh, Andy McCarthy wrote in the National Review that he pointed out that Bragg didn't say what that crime was and that, you know, that that is just leaving us to, to speculate about it. But all of the options that we, we can think of don't seem to be particularly strong. Uh, right. Looking at the other cases that Trump faces. Uh, I think it's safe to say this this appears to be the least perilous one. He's also staring down a special counsel investigation into his role uh, in January 6th, his handling yes. of classified documents after leaving yes. the White House, and finally, a prosecutor in Georgia is looking to his attempts to overturn uh, the election in that state. I should say alleged attempts to overturn the election in that state. What do you think of those prosecutions? From what we know about them, are they stronger? They, do they pose more of a threat uh, than this one in New York? Far stronger. Uh, Georgia, in particular, is very straightforward. So, Georgia, for example, has uh, a statute prohibiting solicitation to commit election fraud. In other words, the attempt to induce somebody to commit election fraud. And you have on tape Trump saying to the Secretary of State's office, I need to find 12,000 votes, 11,780 votes. I don't think, sorry to interrupt you, I don't think we talk enough about how crazy it is that Trump is on tape saying, yes. find me the exact number of votes it would take for me to flip this from Biden to Trump. Yeah. The other crazy thing is we still say on tape, even though there's no tape anymore. <laughs> that used oh, to be. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but still in this era, we say on tape. But he's recorded saying. Yes. Uh, he's recorded saying, find me 11,780 votes. And that's not even the really key part of it. The really key part of it is he also explicitly threatens some sort of criminal sanction to the right. secretary of state. And so this isn't really, an, it's not even an implied threat of criminal sanction. He raises it. He raises that the secretary of state's office could be in real trouble related to them not finding the 11,780 votes. And so let, let me put it like this. Imagine you had a local sheriff and he was trailing his local election by hundred votes. And he goes to, you know, a County election commissioner or County election authorities and says, I need the 101 votes. Or, you know, I mean, you could find yourself in handcuffs. 
Well, that's solicitation to commit election fraud. And, I, and the I would Trump, hope that's illegal. <laughs> right. And the Trump call is really close to that. I mean, it's really close to that. And then you also have conspiracy statutes in, in Georgia related to attempts to commit election fraud. And here's where, you know, it'll be very interesting to see the special grand jury's report when and if it's fully, well, when it's fully made public, because there was also this sort of this fake elector scheme in Georgia where they were going to send an alternative, Trump supporters were going to send an alternative slate mm-hmm. of electors. Well, that alternative slate of electors was fraudulent. That Those were not the electors selected by the state of Georgia. And so if Trump com- participated in that scheme and, and we don't know those facts, again, that's another very straightforward potential charge. But we just know from listening to Tom- Trump talk that his conduct implicates the solicitation, the anti-solicitation statute, and that's just one. There's a whole Brookings report that's really good that if people have a lot of time on their hands, as I believe more than 100 pages, <laughs> details all of the ways that Georgia law interacted with Trump's uh, alleged conduct. So that's very straightforward. When it comes to the federal investigation, which is not just related to January 6th, we when you were talking about it's related to efforts to overturn the election more broadly, um, there are all you have to do is go to the January 6th commission's criminal referral to sort of read through the potential criminal statutes implicated there. And then even cleaner than that is the potential mishandling of classified information and associated obstruction of justice. So those are all very easy to understand, very easy to explain. Just for example, on on, uh, the classified information, you can't take knowingly and intentionally take uh, information pertaining to the national defense, squirrel it away from its secure place, and then lie to federal authorities or try to hide that from federal authorities when they come looking for the information. And, and we don't know that, that is, those are the facts that the special counsel will uncover. But if the special counsel does uncover that Trump did intentionally bring information pertaining to the national defense back to Mar-a-Lago, uh, held it unse- in a in a not sufficiently secured fashion, and then attempted to evade returning those documents when demanded, he's in trouble. He's in real trouble. Mm. Are any of these cases ones where you could conceive of Donald Trump, former president, actually serving time? Both Georgia and uh, both in Georgia and in the federal case, it's not. It's it's hardly out of the question. I think the New York case. You know, this is a situation where he he doesn't have a, pr- a prior criminal record. It's a very low level felony allegation. It's the kind of thing where, you know, a if the case survived, say a motion to dismiss, if you wanted to avoid trial, it's the kind of case that a person would plea bargain their way out of jail time pretty easily, right? In, yeah, in the normal course of business. Now, I don't think Trump has any interest in plea bargaining that case. I think the Manhattan case he perceives as helping him. I think he mm. perceives that because there is such a uh, across the political spectrum condemnation or critique of the underlying charges. I think for a lot of reasons, he sees the Manhattan case as not quite the real threat to his political fortunes that some of these other cases could be. Now, you wrote a piece in the Times recently warning against the violent and apocalyptic rhetoric 
that came from Trump supporters in the aftermath of uh, this indictment. Uh, Tucker Carlson, as you noted, said uh, on air, and it's it's hard for me to be shocked by Tucker Carlson <laughs> comments these days, but this one really kind of blew me away. He, he had this comment. He said, now is a not a good time to give up your AR-15s. Pretty crazy thing for a news host to say at a time like this. Uh, yeah. Do you think that we're in a dangerous time in terms of the climate between Trump riling up his supporters with attacks on the rule of law and conservative media outlets like Fox News fueling those attacks? I, we're at an extremely dangerous time, extremely dangerous. And I, I was talking not long ago to um, somebody who's studying, has studied both the the way in which civil unrest uh, is, civil unrest ignites overseas and also has studied whether those conditions are present here. And the answer is unequivocally they are. I mean, we don't have any, we don't even have to doubt this. Uh, we, we don't have to, to really study this that hard to know from January 6th to many of the lone wolf attacks to the violence we saw in American cities in 2020. There's a lot of dry kindling are where kerosene is already on it. And mm. so all that is awaiting is sort of the spark or the match to hit the right place and a conflagration will erupt. And you'll see this, there, there's now political violence, there's political violence on the left, there's political violence on the right. And so it's incredibly important for people who have public platforms to call for the respecting legal process, to call for if there's gonna be protest and if you're urging protest for it to be peaceful, and here you had a situation where, you know, Tucker Carlson is saying, you know, now's not a right time to give up an AR-15. On his show, you had Glenn Beck saying, we're going to have a war by, what, 2025. Um, then, you know, had Ron DeSantis signaling he was going to defy co the Constitution by not participating in an extradition. Fortunately, Trump surrendered voluntarily rather than causing that kind of, you know, legal challenge or legal crisis. But all of this is... We've got dry kindling and, you know, I'm less worried about a January 6th style mass confrontation and more worried about the kind of like lone wolf violence that we saw, for example, when a, it was an FBI facility was attacked outside of Cincinnati after the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. Um, or, you know, you've seen again, you know, from the left where we had somebody who went to Justice Kavanaugh's home with intention to kill Justice Kavanaugh. When you have extremely inflammatory rhetoric with this dry kindling, then you don't know in any given moment if somebody is going to do something, but you do know the conditions are extremely ripe for it. There's this really bad dynamic at play where the incentives are all messed up, right? So it, just looking at Trump, the way criticism of Trump is always conflated with criticism of his supporters. Right. And like, I can't tell you the amount of times I've heard on Fox, you can't call Trump a liar because that's calling the 70 million who voted for him liars. And it's created this pretty crazy movement that is insulated from any sort of self-reflection. Um, it's the same dynamic that pushed Fox to embrace uh, Trump's election lies because his supporters believed it. You couldn't say that it wasn't true. Well, and, and that's a great, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's one of the fundamental underlying cons of Trumpism is that if you go after Trump, he, if anyone who is going after Trump is going after his supporters. Right. And, and that has bonded Trump to his supporters in a way, unlike almost anything that I've seen in politics. But if you're not in that closed loop in that closed bubble, 
it seems weird. <laughs> you know, it's just strange. No, wait a minute. If I'm going after Trump for telling a secretary of state, I need 11,780 votes and, you know, saying that there could be criminal penalties. I'm not saying you did that. <laughs> I mean, what are we talking about here? That is right. Th- you know, uh, if I'm, if I think Trump violated, you know, falsified business records to pay off a porn star, I'm not saying you did that. It's the weirdest thing. And you see this, if they can go for Trump, they will come for you. Um, <laughs> well, what? You know, it, Presuming it, but, that you don't pay off a porn star whilst in the, in the middle of running for president, you should be okay. Right, right. <laughs> pay off a porn star and critically falsify the business records <laughs> tracking the payment of the porn star. I mean, this is the kind of thing that it's just hysterical nonsense. But in that closed loop, and it's, it, it's one of the reasons why Republicans, in spite of the fact that it, there are many reasons why this should be a quite favorable political environment for them keep losing is they're just locked into this echo chamber that looks increasingly weird to people who are outside of it. But inside of it, it has this kind of airtight internal logic once you buy its starting presumptions. I want to talk about Ron DeSantis a little bit. I previously thought that he was presented a pretty formidable candidate for Republicans um, a few things in the last couple of weeks have made me me rethink that a little bit. Him sort of waffling on Ukraine. He seems to be taking a lot of Trump's lead on certain issues, um, trying to appeal to his base while also running against him. What do you make of what DeSantis has been doing in the last couple of weeks? And, and what do you think about his candidacy? Do you think it's one that can have success in a general election or in a primary even against Trump? Well, you know, look, it's early. Um, it's way too soon to write him off and it's way too soon to write him in. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so, Spot on. You yeah. know, so I, I, there are a lot of troubling signs here because, but there's a tension, there's a tension that I think DeSantis hasn't yet figured out how to resolve. And the tension is this, is that he initially really came to prominence by kind of being a more, I'm not going to say effective, but maybe a less scandalous mini me to Trump. So taking on the big, the liberal media aggressively, taking on the forces of quote, wokeism aggressively. Um, And so he built a following on the online right, you know, on Twitter that loves him for his very aggressively performative, punitive way that he takes on the left. Now, never mind that he keeps losing when he does that. His social media law was blocked. The Stop Woke Act has been blocked in two different court rulings. Um, His Disney, you know, his frontal attack on Disney has floundered. You know, he's trying to escalate the stakes there. But so he's been very performative and punitive in the way that he's taken on the left in the state. The online right loves that. But no, you can never outdo Trump on performative and punitive. You're always going to be his mini-me. But then the other issue that's interesting is I think he's misjudging who his real base is, and it's not the Twitter right. It's college-educated Republican voters. So this is breaking down. The working-class, non-college-educated Republican voters are still all there for Trump. The college-educated Republican voters are going for DeSantis. And when I talk to DeSantis voters around where I live, it's not because he's taking on Disney. It's because he's not Donald Trump. Right. And he's the most famous Republican that they can think of who's not Donald Trump. And not Joe Biden. 
And not Joe Biden, right. So they're desperate for somebody who's not Donald Trump and who is not Joe Biden. And DeSantis is the guy on everybody's lips. And so when he does the Ukraine stuff, he's actually kind of distancing himself from the college-educated voters that are really his core. (laughs) And so his core is not a bunch of online trolls on Twitter that really love him going taking on Disney. His core are the Republican college-educated voters who are ready to move on from Trump. Now, they're not necessarily ready to be made f- to be made to feel bad for voting for Trump, but they're ready to move on from Trump. And he's got to really figure that out. How can he appeal to the people who are ready to move on? And look, being Twitter warrior number one ain't it. Yeah, it almost reminds you of when like a, a centrist liberal candidate sees you know some activist leftist activist on Twitter proposing something and think that it's where the the mainstream of the party is, and then they embrace it, only to realize that actually like most voters don't want radical ideas; they want yeah. popular ideas. Um, I think the right has the Twitter problem that the left had a couple of years ago. Right. Um, exactly. And so you that's why you see so many crazily performative punitive actions out of red state legislatures, out of red state politicians, is they're all they they're terrified of having any enemies to their right. They're just terrified of it. And if your mindset is my number one goal is to avoid enemies to the right, you're going to be steadily moving away from the American mainstream day after day, week after week, month after month. And you saw that in amongst a, a lot of the Democratic field in 2020. It was, everyone was running for Elizabeth Warren's lane, <laughs> and which was disproportionately on Twitter, disproportionately white, well-educated uh, Democratic voters. But as Nate Cohn outlined, two-thirds of Democratic primary voters were offline. They were more diverse, right. they were more moderate, and there was one guy in that lane, like one guy. Pete Buttigieg kind of had one foot there and one foot in the online lane. And it was Joe Biden. And once he sort of emerged and it was very clear that he was sort of the one guy in the Democratic mainstream, he didn't just win the Democratic primary. He routed the field, (laughs) routed it. And so, you know, I think the Republicans have that have a similar dynamic right now in that they're all terrified of right wing Twitter. And and I get it. I get it. Right-wing Twitter can be extremely toxic, and it also drives a lot of the coverage in right-wing media. But that's still out of step. It's dramatically out of step from the American mainstream. Yeah, I mean, I think Joe Biden's the best lesson for anyone that pays too much attention to Twitter and that works in politics. You know, yeah. I, I, the conversations around Joe Biden back in the in the primaries of the 2020 election was this guy's never going to win anything. And then he goes on to win, you know, 80 million votes or whatever. <laughs> I know more <laughs> votes than Obama. It's crazy. Like, get off Twitter. Uh, speaking of these sort of like trolley moves that DeSantis is doing, he threw his support in Florida or at least voiced support for uh, these laws that are trying to roll back press protections. And while that's happening in Florida, we've got possibly the biggest media trial of the century it's going to kick <laughs> right. off on monday we've got fox news dominion and dominion suing fox news for defamation over the their commentary after the 2020 election what do you make of this case do you think one do you think dominion is going to win and two do you think that's a good thing given that this is a private company challenging a news outlet's free speech rights and could pose serious well, problems so- for the first amendment 
Yeah, it doesn't. And here, here's why I, I say that. Um, so the New York Times v. Sullivan standard is going to control this case, um, which New York Times v. Sullivan is the most, is an extremely speech protective standard that was devised by the Supreme Court that says if you're going to be speaking about a public figure or a company like Dominion that has a public presence, it is very hard to prove defamation. You have to prove what's called actual malice. Now, to a bit of historical background, defamation has never been considered protected speech. Never. Okay. Slander, defamation, libel, that has never been considered protected speech. So there's no American historical uh, protection for defamatory speech. What the Supreme Court did, it said, well, okay, we're going to look at this, this history that says there's no protection for defamatory speech, and we're going to give people who speak about public figures even an extra layer of protection to double protect speech. So whereas if I was not a public figure by being a t- columnist at the Times, if I'm just, you know, if I'm a guy just minding my own business in Tennessee and you lie about me and it's harmful to me, I can, as a general matter, c- recover damages against you, even if you're just negligent. But because I'm a Times columnist, you could say something untrue about me and I'd have to prove that you intentionally lied or that you were so reckless with the truth that it was essentially functionally the same as an intentional lie. That's a very speech protective standard. And so, to win, Dominion has to meet that test. And so my view is that test is very protective, but it's also in line with our historical, um, our, our historic position that we do not protect defamation. And so I don't view it as a threat to free speech. Um, I think that if Dominion cannot make its case to a jury, then you know it can't make its case. But if it can, then this is a proper amount of accountability. Right. I mean, there's a reason why public figures will often, if they can, go to Ireland or the UK to sue people <laughs> right. for affirmation because those countries and, and much of the world do not have the incredibly strong protections that the United States does for speech, which is a great thing and usually is very, very good at protecting news outlets like Fox News from facing these kind of cases. Then there's one other thing about this, Aiden, that I think that I've, I've talked to people about this who are loyal Fox News watchers because I live in a Fox News watching part of the country. And they're like, oh, you know, if you saw the internal communications of media outlets, you'd see this kind of stuff. And I'm like, no, yeah, I, right. I work at a mainstream media outlet. You do not see these kinds of internal <laughs> communications like this is yeah. wild stuff where they know they're putting lies on air. They know it. I, so, I was speaking yeah. to, to Dan Abrams, who owns Mediaite, and uh, he's worked at MSNBC. He's worked at a bunch of uh, news networks over the years. He's now at ABC News and News Nation. And I, I had a radio interview with him, and I asked him, we were specifically talking about Rupert Murdoch emailing Suzanne Scott to say the network needs to get behind the Republican Party and Trump so that we can win in Georgia right after the 2020 election. He said he, that is not something that you see at any news network where there is a Obviously, hosts have biases. MSNBC right. is a progressive network. CNN uh, was a very anti-Trump network for, for four years. None of those networks has the president or the CEO chairman of the parent company sending an email that has a dictum for the entire network to support one particular political party. I, I just want to uh, switch gears here quickly and uh, uh, ask you about uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. ProPublica reported that 
For years, he's been going on these luxury trips with a GOP mega donor and had not disclosed those, those trips as gifts. Right. Do you think that was proper for Justice Thomas? There have been calls for him to step down. Okay, so let me first do my disclosures. <laughs> so yep. um, Harlan Crow, who is the individual, he is an investor in the dispatch, one of many investors in the dispatch. Um, I have spoken, I think, at three debates uh, that Harlan sponsored, uh, where I debated somebody to my left on, I think all, all three of them may have been around free speech issues. Um, so received honoraria for that. Um, I've been to Top Ridge. I've been to that resort. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there are all my disclosures. Here, here's, here's my issue. Let, let's sec- separate law from vibes. Okay. The law was pretty, cl- pretty clear that if you were talking about hospitality for a long time, you didn't have to disclose. So if you're coming to somebody's house, staying in their guest house or you're flying with them somewhere and, and to go on vacation and that kind of thing, you know, there was this pretty big loophole. So a lot of the early reporting around this, that this was just a clear ethical violation was just wrong. Like it was just wrong. Now, a lot of those loopholes have been closed in the last couple of weeks. Right. right. So, so those loop, loop, those loopholes don't exist going forward. And, and so you're probably going to see either different practice or different disclosures um, then the other question is, you know, the, the, how does it look, <laughs> you know, how do you feel about it? And the way I've put it is this, okay, Harlan Crow has not had any business before the court that I'm aware of. Um, he has not, you know, there's no sort of classic, what you call the classic conflict of interest, but to my friends on the right who say, oh, come on, there's nothing here, move on. My question would be to say, oh, let's let's suppose a different factual situation. Let's suppose that Sonia Sotomayor was really good friends with, say, David Geffen or another activist billionaire on the left and was doing a bunch of stuff, you know, had, you know, with that activist on the left. Would you feel the same way hmm. that you feel about Clarence Thomas and and his relationships? And if not, why not? Uh, so, God, I just I just pictured Sotomayor on uh, George Soros's yacht, and I got a chill down my spine of what, <laughs> of the, of the <laughs> eruption that yeah. made. <laughs> and if you yeah. would feel if you would feel that there is something problematic there, explore that. Think about that. Think right. about why you would feel that that's problematic, even if it's not a violation of the a technical violation of the ethical standards. And I'm not making an opinion, I'm not rendering an opinion about all of this because um, I don't know all the details of the private jet usage and all of that. I don't know all the details. So I'm not rendering an opinion, but the the Supreme Court rules were, did contain this pretty big hospitality or the rules did contain this pretty big hospitality loophole, right? And so, but the question that I would ask people is, Apply the same thinking, if you're on the right, apply the same thinking to this that you would if you learned out something very equivalent about Sonia Sotomayor. And if you're on the left, apply the same thinking if you learned something about, say, Sonia Sotomayor or another justice. I'm just using her as because she's kind of on the left edge where Thomas might be on the right edge of the court. Just be consistent, right. be consistent in how you view this. Yeah, I think the question is, you know, not whether it's illegal. 
I, I think we should hold the Supreme, Supreme Court justices to a high, high ethical standard. Right, and, of course. And it's very, I do think, I agree with you, it's very important for liberals to, to look in the mirror a little bit and say, okay, if this happened to uh, a liberal justice, would I have the same level of outrage that I'm now having about Clarence Thomas? And I would hope that most would say yes. Um, right. Harlan Crow. That after the story came out, there were there was another report. I think the Washingtonian reported that he has this collection of Nazi memorabilia. In in addition, are you rolling your eyes there? I'll, I'll let you you clarify this a little bit more for me because <laughs> you you defended him. You called the you said that any allegation that he's like this Nazi sympathizer is ludicrous. It's insanely you know him. ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> What's the deal here? Yeah. So I've. Ben, I've walked through the Garden of Evil, I think that's what it's called, where he's preserved some of these artifacts from 20th century totalitarianism. Uh, I've been in Old Parkland, where he's got a lot of other historical display. I've seen a lot of sort of Harlan's uh, historical displays. and he is, Have you had tea out of the Nazi teapot? I No, not that I'm aware okay. of. But <laughs> the, he has a huge historical collection. Huge. Right. So if you're going to look at everything from sort of stuff from the czar's court from Russia in the 18th and 19th centuries to, I mean, it's a huge historic Churchill stuff, Roosevelt stuff, stuff from the fount. It's a huge historical collection to sort of say he's a collector of Nazi memorabilia is a, absurd. He's a collector of historical memorabilia. He has real interest in 20th century totalitarian movements both communist and Nazi, from the standpoint of he abhors totalitarianism and he is preserving some of the remnants of totalitarianism so you can see what these cult of cults of personality created and resulted in. And so it is not in any way, if you, if you see it in context, if you see the whole thing, you are not sitting there looking at it going, this guy loves Nazi memorabilia. You're saying this guy is has a an immense historical collection. And you're saying this guy loathed 20th century totalitarianism, which I think we all should. Mm. I think we all should. But I think that that's just an unbelievable smear of the man. I mean, that's just a, it's revolting. And the thing that is so revolting to me about it, Aiden, is that a bunch of people read often nothing more than a tweet or a blocked out paragraph describing one part of a huge historical collection and then are sitting there telling me when I know the man, I've seen the collection that I don't know what I'm talking about. And that's, it's just absurd. Like it's just absurd. You can, you can critique the relationship between, you know, and the way the way the uh, Harlan Crow J Clarence Thomas relationship has worked out, you can critique that fine. But to then smear the man as a Nazi sympathizer when it is 180 degrees opposite from the truth is one of the reasons why I loathe our political discourse so much right now, in especially on that horrible side owned by Elon Musk. I loathe the discourse um, because. Not even the, t even the fact that I know him and can, and could in theory reassure people that he's not like this is taken by some people as proof that I'm really a Nazi sympathizer myself, or right. I can be easily bought by a Nazi sympathizer. Or that you're paid off, right. Because right. of his investment in the dispatch. Right. Yeah. All I, 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 all it takes for me, Aiden, to become friendly with a Nazi sympathizer is a couple of honoraria. There what? You go. <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> 
I, I wanted to just uh, change gears here real quick. And I, I wanted to ask you about, we had, we had another mass shooting in, uh, in the United States this week. It's become this pretty tragic norm. There was the horrific uh, shooting at a school in Nashville earlier this month, a school that you know. And you wrote this really moving piece defending the power of prayer in the face of these attacks, which is often dismissed by some liberals as an excuse not to do anything about these shootings. You also note in the piece that you're a gun owner, you have long still argued for reforms like red flag laws. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's become so hard in this country to effectuate change on the issue of guns? And and do you think that the, the regularity of these Shootings. I mean, we in Kentucky, we had the governor and the mayor of Louisville who both knew someone who was killed in this in this bank shooting. Do you think that's going to lead to any breakthrough on the issue? Well, you know, I, I'm very encouraged that our governor, Bill Lee, just today, as before we were recording this, I saw that he is looking to um, enact something called orders of protection or extreme or extreme risk protective orders, which is a version of like the the red flag law that I've talked about, which says, look. Most mass shootings, most mass shootings after a multi-decade study funded by the Institutes for Justice, most mass shootings, the shooter actually broadcasts their intention to some degree or demonstrates their dangerousness before the shooting. And what orders of protection do is they allow people to respond to actually demonstrated danger. Uh, and it's, I think they're an incredibly important tool, not just for dealing with mass shootings, but also dealing with suicides, for example. But I, I'll tell you the dynamic. The dynamic that you see, especially in red America, is that if you are a Republican politician, for about 99 out of 100 of you, man, that's an exaggeration, maybe 19 out of 20 of you, the threat to your political future comes from the right, not from the left. And so because uh, Tennessee is a very red state and it's a heavily gerrymandered very red state, so it's even redder electorally than it is uh, a redder in its legislature than it is, say, in its its actual composition. And so you're sitting there knowing that if you compromise one inch, where your threat comes from. And so that's why you get an ethos often from people in red states of, I cannot have any enemies to my right. And so in your in that in that world, that is very politically rational talk. But it's not leadership. It's not leadership. And so what ends up happening is you have a bunch of politicians who, even when they are uncomfortable, will say, you know, to paraphrase the the French revolutionary slogan, uh, there goes the base. I must follow them for I am their leader. And Mm -hmm. I'm glad to see Bill Lee stand up and say, we need to get order of protection laws because he is at least to some to some extent saying, look, I'm going to exercise leadership in this area. Maybe I'm going to lose. Maybe it won't pass, but I'm going to try. Yeah, it's the same dynamic we talked about before. And it's something that you wrote about, about how Donald Trump's not in charge of his movement anymore. The movement mm-hmm. is in charge of him. And it, it is great to see politicians that are not following that trend. Right. My last question. You have bounced around in your writing career in the last couple of years. Uh, you're at the Dispatch. You're at the Atlantic. Now you're at the New York Times. How is it going at the Times? I don't know how much like involvement you have in the day to day, but is it actually all out warfare between the young progressive activists and the old timers, <laughs> like some media reporting would like us to believe? 
If it is, I don't see it. I mean, look, <laughs> the, the Times is a big company. There's 5,000 people there. You know, I don't know what's happening in every Slack sub-channel. Um, Thank God. But yeah, and I wouldn't want to know. But my, my experience is with uh, some just really great colleagues, really enjoy working with them. They've been incredibly supportive of me and my work. And it is about 180 degrees opposite from sort of the the media portrayal of it. But again, it's a big company. It, there's all kinds of folks who work there. And, you know, for all I know, there's something happening on some Slack channel that I'm not aware of, but it doesn't affect me. <laughs> all right, David French, thanks so much for coming on again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Check out coverage of my conversation with David French on Mediaite.com.